Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm Chad Kim, and with me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. So it's been about a year and a half since we have uploaded a new podcast to our RSS feed. But today we are going to upload, and you'll be hearing, a podcast that we actually recorded probably a year and a half ago, uh, but it never got uploaded because I ran out of time. So... Um, I also, uh, in the last year and a half, have had a lot of work to do uh, on my PhD and do a lot of work teaching, and I also met, fell in love with, and married my wife. So uh, it has been a very joyful year and a half for me, but I did not have enough time to devote to the podcast. Um, but as of today, my, Tom and Trevor and I have gotten back together, and we're going to start recording new episodes that should be coming out on uh, roughly once, maybe twice a month. So we're not going to try to go as frequently, but we are going to revive the podcast. Um, But we're going to start with just giving you some of our older podcasts. So this one is on Gregory of Nyssa. Um, There's a theologian called David Bentley Hart who has said that this is the greatest theological allegory that he knows. Now, Tom will disagree with him on this podcast, uh, but that is uh, why we chose this one of the writings of Gregory of Nyssa. And so he tells us the story of Moses from Exodus um, and bits from the rest of the Pentateuch. But then he goes on to do a theological allegory that is a, a, a deeper penetrating read of the text um, that has to do with symbolism and the life of the one who believes in God and, and through the lens of the life of Moses. Now, Gregory of Nyssa was born in Cappadocia um, in 335, so the 4th century. He died in 395 after uh, a life of 60 years spent as a bish- priest, bishop, um, very educated man. Um, his brother is Basil of Caesarea, who we've talked about, and they were also both friends with Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, and um, so he's just generally regarded as a saint, as a father of the church um, in Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Lutheranism, a very great and penetrating thinker. Um, and we will do one other of his writings. Uh, this particular episode gets very deep um, into some Platonic philosophy, some general uh, thought about language and um, how he understood the world. It's, uh, it's very helpful, uh, but it's very dense. So our re-entry into the podcast world will be a very good but a very dense look at Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses. Um, sadly, this is one text that is not freely available on the internet as uh, that, like many of the stuff that we read, you can read on Christian Classics Ethereal Library. This one doesn't happen to be so. That being said, it is worth a read. It's not too long, um, and it's very fascinating. I could put a link up on our Facebook page to a place where you could buy a copy of it, but I, but I don't have one to offer uh, for free to read along with us. When we get started releasing new episodes, probably in another month or so, when we release those new episodes, we will be doing... Uh, St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, the great North African uh, bishop, and we will be reading his confession. So we're going to go straight to a great text because we felt like we wanted to do something that all of us loved um, and it was very important to the Western tradition. It is probably the reason uh, that I study theology at all. Um, I I first read it in high school. I love it. So uh, we will There'll be a link up for that. We're going to read the first two books, um, and that'll probably be released in about a month. Uh, But we will slowly be releasing these 
new episode, well, new to you, old to us. They were probably recorded a year and a half ago, but they will be coming out slowly but surely. Um, and so we're happy to be back on uh, making new podcasts. We will also fix the problems of downloads. Um, I know that uh, sometimes the downloads start and stop and do weird things. That's because we had to quit paying for hosting on Podomatic where we host this podcast. Uh, But uh, we will um, be paying for that service again, and so the downloads should be coming regularly. Um, But uh, anyway, that's that. If you would, please give us a rating on iTunes, leave us a review, and subscribe. It would be very helpful to keep the conversation going, to get more people involved, um, and uh, we would love also that way to hear from you all, and we will be updating our Facebook page as well. So before we lead into, the pot, lead into this new episode, I just wanted to put, put in one little pitch for us. If you would review us and give us a, a rating, that would be really helpful, um, and subscribe, as we will be doing this Uh, on a more regular basis. So, thank you very much. So, without any further ado, um, I'm going to lead this into our new episode on Gregory of Nyssa. So, thanks for listening, um, and uh, enjoy the podcast. All right, so we did this week um, the first bit or so of Gregory of Nyssa's The Life of Moses. Um, So... We haven't done a, a podcast yet on Gregory of Nyssa, who was a friend of Basil of Caesarea and Gregory Nazianzus. Um, he has a sort of famous family, his sister Macrina. Um, we won't, I don't remember, I don't think we have Life of Macrina on our list, but that's one of the most famous, um, like, sort of women from this period. Um, so he comes from this very famously. Um, did I get that wrong again? Did I call him the friend and he's the brother? Well, he's the brother of – no, no, no. Nazianzus is the brother for, for Basil. Yeah. Okay. So this is the friend. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So anyway, Macrina, his sister, um, he, he celebrates her quite a bit and says how, how, uh, you know, how holy she is, um, you know, very wrapped up in the monastic movement. He happens to also be um, a priest. Um, wow. But uh, and this this writing that we're reading, the life of Moses, is a letter uh, to a friend to encourage this friend. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, he is uh, you know one of the greatest minds maybe of the uh, early Christian world. May, uh, I think I've talked about with Tom and Trevor that David Bentley Hart has said this is the greatest theological allegory is the exact quote. Um, so. Um, yeah, so if you, he, for, for David Bentley Hart, um, this, this is, um, if you want to understand what it means to read the scriptures allegorically, uh, you should read this text. Um, so it's, yeah. Well, uh, I, I messed up there. So you and I both messed up, Chad. Gregory Nyssa is Basil's brother. So. Okay. I thought that was right. Yeah. Sorry. I get a mix up too. It's yeah. Gregory Nyssa is Basil's brother. Nazianzus is their friend. Right. Okay. I thought, I thought I got that wrong. Yes. That makes more sense. Yeah. Um, so part of this very, uh, holy and well-known family, Basil, Macrina, Gregory, Gregory Nyssa, um, all of these guys. Um, so we read, uh, the prologue and the first part 
basically, of this life of Moses. And so Moses is an important figure both for Philo, for Origen. Uh, so the, the focus on Moses as kind of this iconic follower of God has a long history in Alexandria. Um, and we know that Gregory Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea both um, – both read and de- depended very heavily on Origen. They seem to have collected some of his works. So it's no surprise that through Origen um, and through this Alexandrian connection, there's a very strong emphasis on Moses as sort of the example uh, of a virtuous life. Um, so so he's going to read Moses. Uh, and the interesting thing is the first book um, is all a very um, sort of prosaic, simple, literal reading of Moses. And then the second book um, is this allegory. Um, And before we get to that, though, we should start with the prologue. And I actually found the prologue more interesting than the first book one, um, because he sets out what his task is. And he says, and here we're going to come straight away to this problem that we've talked about before. What are they talking about? When they're talking about a perfect life. So he says, so the letter which you recently sent requested us to furnish you with some counseling counsel concerning the perfect life. I thought only proper to answer your request. So this, whatever he's writing is about living the perfect life. So we can start there. Um, which is what does it mean to live a perfect life? And he goes on to explain it in the following chapters or the following pages as well. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, that that is the theme. Um, that's what he wants to learn from Moses. What is the perfect life? And I think it's worth asking, what are we talking about when we're saying perfect here? Uh, good question. I, you know, I think uh, one, one passage I'd reference is in, I don't know if this, how this breakdown is. It's numbered as section eight on my, my little version, but it says it is therefore undoubtedly impossible to attain perfection. Since I have said perfection is not marked off by limits. The one limit of virtue is the absence of a limit. How then would one arrive at the sought for boundary when he can find no boundary? So it seems to me that what he's saying there is, is that technically in a strict sense, one can't attain real perfection, not a real perfect life. um, Because for a human the idea is that we are on a progression in life. Like we are presumably getting better and more virtuous, but it's a, but, but perfection is boundless. So there's no upper limit. There's no ceiling for us to reach. So in one sense, I think he would say that true perfection isn't possible in that sense. But then it seems to me that he kind of brings the definition, his definition of perfection maybe down a little bit because he still definitely believes that there is a kind of perfection that we can ascribe to. He, he actually says right there, um, how then would one arrive at the sought for boundary? So this idea that we have something that we're supposed to be striving for, right? And in, in the following section, he quotes the scripture where it says, therefore be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Right. So how does he switch it? How does he, how does he shift it? Our goal? Yeah. I mean, uh, so I just, I mean, I found this, either extremely puzzling or extremely lucid and I'm not sure which. <laughs> um, and and I say that because he like he's clearly playing with the dual meaning in Greek of perfect meaning end where you where you finish um, and also 
uh, end meaning what is your purpose, like what is your purpose, what is your meaning in life, um, and this sort of this idea of of completion of um, of being whole of being um, you know doing what you were made to do. So this like and one thing that I just couldn't help but think about on every page of this, he even quotes Philippians where he's talking about a race. Um, he talks about incur- like watching a horse race. Every page of this is about movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. He has a sense that there is somewhere where we're going. And whatever it is, wherever it is we're going, that is attainable. So however he's using the word perfection, so to, uh, again, to there are pitfalls here for, for, I think, contemporary Christians. I mean, I know at least myself and kind of my background and the tradition I come from, uh, I feel very uncomfortable speaking of perfection. Um, we've had, of course, some, some uh, uh, friends write into the show uh, who come from more of a Nazarene background or a Methodist background. And, of course, there's John Wesley's view of perfectionism, which um, settles well with, uh, which settles well into a certain theological context. My experience, my background, makes the notion of perfection something which is, I, I find, very suspect. So when he's using this uh, as, as, a, as a term of aspiration, that is something I'm supposed to aspire to, something I'm supposed to reach, my initial thought is, no, he's just wrong. He's off the mark. But of course, he quotes the scripture there. He quotes Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, therefore, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so he is asking, what does that mean for us? And I think he does. He, he has this notion of completion or something. That is, that there is a definite um, way that man is supposed to live his life, and it's attainable. And whatever that looks like, I can reach that by, like you said, motion, moving forward, um, that I can continue to grow, which I think is helpful because I do think that a lot of contemporary um, evangelical theology kind of carries with it this notion almost that we should be static, that we shouldn't be concerned to move or grow or improve. And I know that nobody actually espouses that directly, I don't think, but I do feel that as kind of like a, I don't know, a zeitgeist maybe that, that uh, fills the church. This, it's almost this notion that we shouldn't set a, a virtue, virtue goals because setting a virtue goal is somehow works oriented. You know, it's like I've, I've heard people say things like you've got to stop trying to succeed or do better and let, you know, uh, just exist and let God do the work that you can't, of course, um, grow unless God is doing the work in you, which I do believe, but I just find that this mindset often kind of creates a, a sense of stasis that we have to just stay put and not, necessarily strive for growth well it's like it says in section 10 he said we should show great diligence not to fall away from the perfection which that's a really weird way to talk about it which he says is attainable but to acquire as much as possible so already that's a pretty weird sentence but then he says to the extent to that extent let us make progress within the realm of what we seek for the perfection of human nature consists perhaps in its very growth and goodness. So it's almost like um, it, it's almost like it's really literal in the sense of 
your growth and your goodness is your attaining of perfection. But it's like the it's like the diligence to always want to seek after it. That's I'm I'm reading into this, so maybe Chad will just correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems like it's the the diligence to keep striving forward is what is attainable, according to uh, him. And so that's that's like ultimately, I guess, what human perfection is. I don't know. So okay. Um, <laughs> so here's my thought. So I, I mean, yeah, I am definitely, so I've got the, I've got the Greek, um, you know, going behind us. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm looking at that as well on this. Uh, but here's the, th- okay. So here's my big, here's what I think is going on. Um, and I've made this, I've made this case before. I know that we've, we've questioned it with Clement, but I can't help but think on every page of this Gregory of Nyssa is almost screaming out to us, you shouldn't be using the word in English perfect. <laughs> um, and and I, I just wonder if that if putting that word in there is like throwing a wrench that knocks us off the path every time. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because we can only think of perfect anymore as in without blemish, without fault, um, as in the sort of Wesleyan notion of perfection where we're absolutely... Um, like Christ um, or something, you know, and I think, so what I think is going on, you know, so we should show great diligence not to fall away from the perfection, which is attainable. I think that line that you're saying, again, I, if we go back to this movement, I think for, for Gregory of Nyssa, stasis, stasis, standing still is a problem. Um, but maybe even worse than that is going the wrong direction. Um, and, and in a sense, we're always moving. So I, I said it's all about movement. And, and it's which, it's what is driving is maybe the question. What is the passion that is moving us? And so when, when the Greeks talk about like apatheia, I think what they're saying is, are you putting yourself in such a way uh, that, that you're not suffering the, the passions, you're not suffering by wrong desires, um, but you're actually being moved by the spirit of God? Um, and you should, and the, and the thing is, is it's always about movement, but it's which direction are you headed towards your end, which is, I think at times your end, your goal is both God, um, and it's also virtue. But I also think if we're thinking in terms of, uh, what like Athanasius, um, you know, sort of the, the divinization quality, it's actually one and the same moving towards God and moving towards virtue are one and the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, God became man so that man might become God. That is perfect virtue. Right. Um, so I think every, every page of this is about movement and, and, and when he's quoting be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, as we always translate it, you know, it, it grates on me when I even hear people translate it that because I, I want to say what Jesus is actually saying is pursue the right goal just as your heavenly father has already perfectly achieved it in a way, or as your heavenly father is already perfectly living out his goal. Um, And so I think it's actually far less stifling than it's made. Um, And so far as like, when I first heard that, my first thought is, well, I can't be perfect. So what's the point in telling me to be perfect? Um, Rather, if he's, if he's saying something that's maybe, you know, in a way is just as difficult 
uh, but it's not impossible. It's more just get on the right path and be moved by the right spirit um, and, and not be moved by your passions. It's kind of in the spirit of, like, here on earth as it is in heaven, like, bring the kingdom now, as in, like, pursue the good things of God and bring his kingdom to this world as it already is, though, for God. It's kind of like in that spirit, I guess. Yeah. Huh. That's well, interesting. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, when I think about that passage in the Sermon on the Mount, it seems to me that what Jesus is really addressing is the fact that the religious people of his day, um, the scribes, and the, the group he terms always the scribes and the Pharisees, that they have this standard of righteousness. Um, and that standard of righteousness is really, it, it really nestles in human observation, meaning it's basically a certain kind of righteousness that appears righteous before people, but is not concerned with the, uh, with the, the heart issues. And so he goes through this series of teachings about how you've heard it was, it was said not to um, murder, but if anybody's even angry in his heart with his brother, he has, he's in danger of judgment. Or you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But if a woman, if a man even lusts after a woman, uh, he has committed adultery. It seems that he's saying, look, your goal, the, the, the part that you, the, the, the standard that you need to attain is at the level of God that you can't set a goal that is lower than that. You can't set a goal um, uh, for this imagined righteousness. And so he's calling for a certain uh, type of action, which is going to completely revolutionize the entire human and not just the external uh, parts of the human. And I think your reference to Athanasius uh, and his use of the term deification, um, the fact that in us, uh, that as Christians... We are being transformed into Jesus, in a sense. That that's a pretty good uh, use of, of the term here. That that obviously, what is who is the man we're trying to become? Who is the man we're trying to attain to? It's Jesus, um, yeah. and it's not a statement about us actually attaining um, sinlessness or something along those lines. But instead, it's it's about what we should actually um, set as our goal. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, a little bit further on, I don't. For, I'm looking at a different version that apparently doesn't have the same paragraph numbers that yours does. Uh, but it, he says, perhaps then the memory of anyone distinguished in life would be enough to fill our need for a beacon of life, light and to show us how it can bring our soul to the sheltered harbor of virtue where it no longer has to pass the winter and the storms of life or be ship, shipwrecked in the deep water of evil by the successive billows of passion. Um, so again, um, what we have going on here is this same uh, – it's, it's still a, it's a, uh, an image of movement. And are mm -hmm. the passions going to move you and shipwreck you and have you pursue the wrong ends, which might be pleasure itself, um, which, you know, these, these sort of traditional sort of even, you know, very Greek um, – uh, values. And he would say, no, you actually, you need a map. You need someone to follow. You need a guide. Um, mm -hmm. And Moses is your guide. Moses is your beacon. Moses is your light. Um, and so if you follow this, then you won't, you know, you will choose uh, the, the, the right direction to head. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's just every page I feel like is, you know, uh, every page is, is just the, all, every bit of this is about movement. And I think, 
you know, I, I may have, may have mentioned this before, um, but for the Greeks, even understanding itself was a notion of movement. Like understanding wasn't static. Um, and, and so, um, you know, it, it's, it's like, um, I'm trying to think of like, uh, to comprehend is to grasp at something, to reach at something, right? Um, and that's literally what that word means in Latin. Um, comprehendere is to grab after something. So when you're, un, when you're doing this process of understanding, you are, you are actually moving, and in a way, you're moving into the object itself, and, and all true knowledge is a moving after God. Um, so if, you're, if I'm looking for, the, for knowledge or understanding of tr- a tree, in a way, I'm grasping through the tree. And if I truly understand what my aim is, I'm actually aiming at God that is behind the creation of the tree um, yes. that I think is beautiful. Um, and it's always, it's always a form of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like that. I like that because it, it basically says that theology is at the heart of all learning, that basically every kind of knowledge is a knowledge of God. doesn't yeah. matter what it is. At the end of the day, the only thing we're trying to understand more of is God himself, which makes sense because we can't really understand God in and of himself. We only understand him by approximation. We only understand him as he's revealed, obviously, in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and we understand him by analogy and metaphor and by the created order. So studying botany does actually lead to the knowledge of God. Um, you know, studying, I, I think, heck, I, I think studying carpentry and architecture, right? It, it's learning about building things and what it means to be the maker of something. I mean, I think anything uh, is, can, can be and is uh, an avenue by which we come to know God more. Yeah. And, and by a, a strike, uh, what I think is a rather striking piece of um, uh, juxtaposition or even contradiction, um, the scientific notion of studying a plant is pure objectivity and pure separation. Mm. Um, and so a scientific study of a tree presumes that I, ha- that I can observe it without interfering at, with it at all. Um, and what, what they're saying is directly the opposite. The only way to truly understand the tree, even in itself, is to, is to have an interplay with it. Um, and, and really, ultimately, will lead you to not the tree, but the thing behind the tree, um, yeah. which, you know, for them is, of course, always God. And, and so, you know, it's... Almost it's Kantian. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm just taking a Kant seminar right now, and it's on the brain all the time now. Okay, go ahead and explain. I don't want it to be true, but <laughs> well, well, because that was like part of Kant's big thing. He called it his Copernican revolution. Was we don't actually see things in themselves yeah. objectively, right? That rather we contribute something. It's a little different because you're kind of saying it's you, but God as well contributes yeah. something. But your experience, you know, in like a really real way, he would say even like space and time are contributed to the experience by your own mind. But like, I don't know. Anyway, it just reminded me of that 
because it, he would deny Kant would agree at least to an extent is I guess my point. Yeah. Well, and I think okay, so I'm bringing all of this up. Ultimately, I think it will launch us into the allegory. Um and the reason that I say that um is because, you know, part of the difficulty that that we constantly have when reading especially the Greek fathers, I feel like, but even even Augustine, like when when, you know, God willing we get to him by next year or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> you know, I think what what we continually see is that we look for something um, we try to look at it objectively. We try to look at it at face value, um, and and we fail to see that something deeper is is at play. And and so he's going to spend only a few pages telling us literally what happened to Moses in his life, and then he's going to spend the bulk of this narrative um, about what it what its deeper truths that it's conveying. Um, so he's, he's saying, okay, yeah, you have to know something about the tree, you know, something about its branches, you know, something about its leaves. Um, and that's, that's good. But what you really want to know is something deeper. Why is it beautiful? Well, because it reflects the divine. Um, why, or because it's some, it tells us something about the orderliness of God or because it says, and so it, there's, so in the same way, the narrative, the narrative is there and it's helpful and like the the story that we know about Moses and the basket and the killing of the uh, slave driver and, you know, these sort of like fit, like these narrative details. Yeah. You have to know those. And he doesn't want to deny that those are part of the story, but what he wants to really do is move and move deeper. The most important thing isn't this very odd literam, um, this very at the literal um, and he's always trying to dig, dig deeper. And so the most important thing is actually what's behind the letter, not the letter itself. Well, and this gets back to, I think, what um, at least evangelical Christians um, will have the toughest time doing when they read somebody like Gregory or when they read somebody like Origen or Clement or many of the guys that we've been reading, it is difficult. I think honestly, it's not just evangelicals, it's modern Western thinkers. We don't think allegorically. That isn't to say we don't use metaphor or we don't use allegory. We do, but we are really concerned with the letter. We're really concerned with what it literally says. Um, You know, we, we read the first 11 chapters of Genesis and our focus is on the historicity. Did it happen exactly the way it's written? Is there more to it? Uh, the thought here, uh, it's pretty evident that most of the um, second, third, well, certainly third and fourth century Christian thinkers are just not as concerned with the literal aspects of the text, at least at least not in much of the text. I don't want to say that they aren't as concerned with the literal aspects of, say, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. They obviously are concerned with that. But it seems that they're very concerned with getting behind the text to discern the allegory. And and as I've been reading through this life of Moses, it is pretty clear that, uh, I mean, the guy is definitely swinging for the fences, right? I mean, he is trying to find something you've never heard before because he is making conclusions that I, I've, I can't even like, I'm, I just am reading them going, how did he get there? I have no idea how he made this leap and this jump. And honestly, he does a pretty decent job of defending his positions. I mean, he makes some pretty good arguments, but it's still so uh, just out of whack 
with the way that I read the scripture or the way I read anything. Um, hey, Chad, kind of to the point you made earlier about uh, how kind of the <clears throat> modern or postmodern person uh, kind of thinks scientifically about knowledge, about learning, how he learns by by studying the, the by observing the tree and noticing things, but but that what what these guys would say is they would say you need to get closer, you need to get deeper. Um, it's it just made me think of a podcast I listened to last week. I, I would imagine many of our podcast listeners listen to This American Life. It is the most downloaded podcast in human history. I'm pretty sure that podcasts exist because of this American life. So, so it's, it's only right that every podcast should give credit where credit is due. Um, but the newest episode of, of this American life, um, the newest episode of this American life, five ninety six, becoming a badger is exactly what you were talking about. The opening sequence uh, recounts the story of a, an Oxford professor who is a lawyer and a veterinarian, which how do you, I don't know how that's possible, how you can study law and veterinary medicine and become both. And he, he's a lecturer at Oxford. He is, has this fascination with animals, and he feels that the only way to understand them is to kind of get down uh, and try to emulate them. And so he kind of mimicked – he actually published a book on this, but he mimicked – like he spent weeks and months living the lives of animals. And becoming a badger is just about his experience trying to live as a badger. So he did things like wear a blindfold because bland, uh, badgers don't see very well. Tried to rely completely on his nose. Um, and he described just what that experience was like. Now, personally, I think it all sounds a little over the top and a little crazy. But even his descriptions of it um, intrigued me uh, and made me think about what what was humanly possible uh, in terms of knowledge and learning, in terms of what we can learn about something through experience. So. I don't know. Just it's just one of those things popped into my head when you said that. So, yeah, no, it, it's a, it is a very funny little anecdote. <laughs> I'm have to listen to that one. Haven't listened yet. Yeah. Well. Um, so uh, I guess one other point that I wanted to highlight before we get into the allegory, he gives you little hints. Um, one of them that's sort of fascinating on mine. It's page twenty-one. Uh, it's when he talks about Moses going up on the mountain. Um, and, uh, while, while he was there, while he's on top of the mountain, he received the divine ordinances. These were teachings concerning virtue, which I should just stop right there and just say, this is clearly a Greek reader, <laughs> um, versus <laughs> like no Jewish person went, Oh, I think God's talking about virtue in this very Greek sense about, uh, well, cause the, the Greek word is arete is that they're using here. It's, I mean, it's just Greek excellence, right? Yeah. Um, and for the Jews, it's law. He went up and he got a law. Uh, he, did not, he did not go up there and receive the guide to excellence. Uh, to- <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love it. Like I, I you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking in every bit of it. But I just want to highlight how drastically different that would read uh, to the standard Jewish reader. Virtue, he didn't arate, arate my butt. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the chief of which well, is veteran. actually. Can, can I make a comment off of that? Really, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that's so interesting that a lot of people don't consider when you are studying these ancient texts you are studying an ancient text of somebody who's studying an ancient text. 
So you have like, you cannot help but experience their coloring of the, of the text itself and just the biases that they bring, which we might be able to discern a little more clearly because we're so far removed. But now we are bringing our coloring because, and because we're so close, we might not be able to discern um, just what biases and what, um, you know, just what, you know, what, what kinds of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, lenses that we add to, to the picture so that we don't see it the way that the original audience saw it. And that's something that's always difficult um, when you're trying to uh, take a look at ancient literature, and especially when that ancient literature is core to religious belief. Yeah. So. Sure. Well, so, um, yeah, and, and actually what you're, I mean, what we're about to, what I'm about to read will probably highlight your point even to an even greater extent, but um, the chief of which is reverence and having the proper notions, proper notions about the divine nature inasmuch as it transcends all cognitive thought and representation and cannot be likened to anything that is known. He was commanded to heed none of those things comprehended by the notions with regard to the divine, nor to liken the transcendent nature to any of the things known by comprehension. Rather, he should believe that the divine exists, and he should not examine it with respect to quality, quantity, origin, and mode of being, since it is unattainable. Um, so, uh, if you don't hear Aristotelian categories here, um, then, you know, like that's part of, of the ancient resonance that he is bringing out. Um, you know, uh, I mean, cognitive thought, um, I'm pretty sure that phrase doesn't exist in Hebrew exactly like that. Um, you know, I mean, like all of these things are just such a Greek way of reading this. Um, and I mean, sometimes I wonder, like, I wonder if I, like, sometimes I'm not sure if I understand it perfectly or if I have no clue what he's talking about. Um, because I know, I know to hear his resonance, but I'm not, at the same time, I, maybe I have no, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I think I get what he's trying to say, but I'm, but I'm all, I have this cognitive dissonance because I was like, when I was taught to read what went on in Exodus, I was taught I should only think of this like a Jewish person within the Jewish tradition reading Hebrew, um, not what he's trying to do, which is, okay, we have the Nicomachean ethics or we have Aristotle's categories or we have these other uh, Plato's Timaeus or whatever. Like we have all these other things that tell us about God, that tell us about creation um, that are so important to Gregory um, that he's clearly drawing on. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly he is just adopting Aristotle's, uh, Aristotle's way of looking at the world. And one of the things that's really interesting is he assumes that Moses is concerned with the same kinds of things that Aristotle is concerned with. Or at least it seems that way. Yeah. I mean, he seems to apply these categories not just to his interpretation of Genesis, but he seems to apply the categories to Moses' way of thinking as if Moses is also wrestling with universals and forms and, um, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff, which is, seems crazy to me. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a very bizarre thing reading this text. I wonder as if a, a, a Greek just started writing, uh, a, you know, the story in their own culture. I wonder if it's out of reverence, if he thinks like, this is Moses. And 
clearly, you know, Moses had these thoughts because any intelligent person would have these thoughts or, I don't know, maybe he's doing something like that thinking that because of that philosophy in his culture is like the height of intellectual knowledge, he wants to attribute it to Moses or something. I don't yeah, know. It's clearly done out of reverence. I, I have no doubt. Yeah. I mean, he, he thinks, he thinks he's, he's, uh, I do think that, that, that this is a, as a tribute to it. We would look at it as a kind of, um, syncretism. We might criticize him for it. Um, thinking that, uh, that, that he's not doing his research the way that we would think to do research. Um, but for him, it's paying it. Yeah, I think it, it is paying it the highest tribute. Um, right. And there, there's this whole other question that constantly goes on, which is, uh, what does it mean to do theology in your own context? Um, so he's doing theology for a Greek context, constantly with an ear, um, and maybe even th- thinking about the ear um, of of um, to 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 pull a phrase from Schleiermacher, his cultured despisers, <laughs> um, you know, so Kelsis, so por- uh, Porphyry, so you know, these guys are have been cr- condemning and criticizing Christianity, and he wants to show, no, this faith has more to it um, than you guys think. Right, that makes sense. You know, um, for whatever reason, this conversation uh, reminded me of a little episode. Sorry to be constantly bringing up other um, podcasts. No, no. But it, it brought up uh, an episode of On Being with Krista Tippett that I listened to a long time ago, where she interviewed Yaroslav Pelikan. Okay. He talked about uh, the Maasai Creed, uh, which was a creed composed in 1960 by Western Christian mar- missionaries for the Maasai, which was an indigenous African tribe in Kenya. Um, What I found so interesting about this is the way that this creed, which is more or less a different version of the Apostles' Creed, utilizes the language and the cultural effects of the people, right? So uh, I don't want to read the whole thing because it's long. It's beautiful. I encourage anybody to check it out. But um, just listen to this. We believe that God made good his promise by sending his son Jesus a man in the flesh, a Jew by tribe. Now, even though the Jews use the term tribe, when I read this, I can't help but picture an African tribe, right? They're, they're picturing right. this way that their people, a born poor in a little village, it says, who left his home and was always on safari doing good, right? So wow. always on safari. So I, I'm reading this, and it makes me think of what um, – Gregory is doing here. He's reading Moses in Hebrew, but he has this lens of Greek thought, this, this lens uh, of, of a man who has been immersed his whole life in the readings of Plato and in Aristotle, and not just in reading them, but in a culture that grew up around them. And he thinks in the categories that they think in, and he's concerned with the problems they're concerned with. And he just, he retakes this text and reinterprets it to fit the problems that he's wrestling with. And I don't know. I mean, like you, Chad, I was trained to read the Bible um, in, in a similar fashion. Of course, I don't know Hebrew, but I was trained that you read it as much as is possible with the eyes of the, uh, of the, uh, the eyes and the mind of the original speaker and audience or the original writer and audience. You try to get into his head. What was he saying? What was he communicating? And what were they hearing? Um, that that's the proper way to read the scriptures. 
And one of the things that we've seen consistently uh, in the church fathers is they don't read the scripture like that. And I think it's a valuable question to raise and to ask um, to what degree is it right for us to uh, also take a, come to approach the scripture and, or, uh, you know, obviously this isn't the Bible. Well, no, it is because he is interpreting Moses. Uh, Gregory's not the Bible, right. but um, uh, to what degree can we bring our lenses to what degree can we bring the categories uh, that define kind of the way we, how we categorize things and break things down in our mind to what degree can we bring our problems and our questions and our confusions and insert them upon the text to what degree is that right? To what degree was that God's intent when he inspired the scriptures? Um, I think that's just a valuable question that, that Christians need to wrestle with. All right. So here's, here's my, you, you, uh, maybe, maybe I'll be able to say this in a different way. I don't think what I'm about to say is novel, but to us, and I'm going to use this word very specifically, scientific, historical, critical reading of scripture is how we judge its correctness. It is the kind of, it is the kind of rule that everybody agrees to, right? So if you're, if you're Richard Dawkins, um, if you're N.T. Wright, the question is, is it scientifically reliable history? Um, and so we are going to read it by the rubric, which to us is, is science. And science, of course, having the ancient root, I mean, having the Latin root of, of literally just uh, knowledge. Um, so how is it that we acquire knowledge and be certain about our knowledge, or at least you know, Humean skepticism about certainty and all that other stuff. How do we have a fairly reliable sense of, um, of, of, of its accuracy, of its correctness, of its truth? Um, and for us, it has always been original intent of the author. author or, you know, I say for us, it has always been. Let me go back and restate that. Since the 19th century, more or less, it has been, okay, does it pass the tests of uh, scientific historical reliability? Um, what I think that Gregory is doing, he's not trying to apply it to a context in a, in a, in a very, in a self-conscious way. He's just thinking, what is the best science? What is the best way to know that something is true? Well, it's to think about it in terms of what Aristotle has taught us. And so all, the only way I know to adjudicate, uh, between competing complaints, uh, uh, competing claims for truth is to use all of these very platonic Aristotelian notions. Um, and rather than for us, which would be, you know, can we establish um, what the original author meant um, and what, you know, the, these kind like uh, other, other questions like that, that's how we establish, did it actually happen um, in this way? And we have a really tough time absenting ourselves from that so that we can see it for what it is, which is just the most universal um, uh, uh, court of appeals. Yeah, I think he's doing like exactly what we do, except through the intellectual milieu of his culture. And because he's even using what we now call science to his favor. I mean, when he talks of substance well of Aristotle's categories at all if you mention any of them you know these can be used in a scientific way um, uh, you know then it was all just philosophy of course but 
I mean, a lot of it is through a, yeah, it's just through the, the top, whatever they consider at that point, the top intellectual, you know, way to discern anything, essentially. It's, it's like, I'm certain that it was probably the culture of his school and their way of thinking as well, but it, to me, it, when I read it, it's like, yeah, this, this just makes sense because for them, these are like the smartest guys, and it's now almost canon that, you know, this is right about the world, and they're describing the world accurately, so. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think it's, it's also, and you kind of alluded to that there, Trevor, it's not just that these are the smartest guys and the guys that we respect the most, but these guys, their theories about how we know things are the prevailing theories about how we know things. And that, of course, pertains to what you were saying, Chad, about 19th century uh, historical criticism. It, it, was a th it basically grew up in German academia, and it was a process by which they thought they could get at the heart of what was actually said. And so we just have taken that as the highest uh, example of how we know stuff. So we are just applying our own tools because we think they're the best tools and they're applying the tools they have because of course they thought they were the best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and next week we will be doing the same. We will actually just look at him applying those tools. And I think we could continue to ask the question, okay, so if, you know, what, what can we, is there still something we could learn from him though? Or it, should it just be relegated to obscurity? Um, well, this was just the best tool of its time. Uh, what enduring legacy does it contribute? Um, you know, even though even though we're not probably, uh, you know, when Tom goes to preach on a Sunday morning, uh, likely he's not going to do an allegorical interpretation in the style of Gregory Nyssa uh, yeah. for his congregation or you know uh, whatever. Uh, you know, but some some guys have, and not maybe. I guess maybe some guys are doing it now. But I mean, Spurgeon. Spurgeon was all about allegory. So there you have a 19th century preacher who's definitely going against the, uh, the consensus of the time in terms of how you should be reading the Bible. Yeah. Right? So you have it. I, I would imagine you have guys who do the same nowadays. You're right. I wouldn't. But I would imagine you have guys today who do the same. Yeah. Well, and so we'll see, we'll see it at work. And even from the first page uh, of the next section, he starts talking about our decision uh, as a new birth. Um, it is a very intellectual way to read uh, the Moses story and in a way that's just totally foreign to a uh, very literal reading. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I love it. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm to I mean, in many ways, I'm totally on board. Uh, I'm like, yes, the intellectual journey. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm doing my PhD and, you know, so that, of course, I love the intellectual journey. Yeah, right. 